Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Campsite Media. On an overcast spring afternoon, Naomi, the show's producer, meets me at my house in the Jersey suburbs. We hop into my dadmobile SUV, the one with the soccer balls and child seats in the back, and we head out to Montclair, where the infamous 1990 state championship took place. The game the Montclair Mounties lost in a shocking upset that still enrages and confounds locals to this day. Montclair's a place I know really well. I moved there from Virginia in 2009, when I was hired by the Star-Ledger. It's where my wife and I went on our first date. It's where we moved in together for the first time. It's where all three of our children were born. I lived here about eight years, until we bought our first house just one town over, in West Orange. Montclair is about as close to home as it gets for me in New Jersey, so I can't help but narrate for Naomi as we drive around. This is like Montclair proper. There's just a lot of like boutiques here, mom and pop restaurants, art stores, and then they have a new weed dispensary right here, Ascend. Oh, wow. You can buy legal weed. All that walkway there, that is within the last like six months they've built that. Montclair's changed a lot in the last three decades since the big game. It's now one of the wealthiest communities in the entire state, and it's expensive here, really expensive, which is why my wife and I bought our house in West Orange. There are still some low-income pockets in Montclair, some Section 8 housing and a few areas where crime is moderate, but for the most part, people told me working-class and low-income families have been priced out. This is like where the kind of rough part of town used to start, and now they're like it's like gentrifying it. I mean, again, they're... It's like all big cities. This used to be really rough, and now it's like all like, you know, I don't know what this, this uh, some nice foo-foo restaurant that they're putting in. Montclair used to be more mixed income, with a big working class population. Montclair natives describe it as a true melting pot, the kind of place where everyone gets along. Ricky Cook is a police officer who grew up in Montclair in the 90s. Ricky's black, and he remembers going over to his white friend's house for dinner as a kid. My favorite cuisine is Italian now, and I remember the first time I tasted penne vodka. It changed my life. Ricky wanted to raise his family in Montclair because that diversity is one of the things he treasures most. Montclair, you know, we're special here. It's a special bubble. And I say that because you go to different parts of this country, it's just not the same. Me, for example, I lived in tiny apartments with the five of us, and I could go to a friend's house party in a mansion and I never felt any kind of disparity. I never felt less than. And everybody pretty much got along, you know, black, white, or whatever in between. And that's actually one of my driving forces of wanting to stay in Montclair. My wife's from Montclair, 
And uh, we both wanted that for our kids. People like Ricky, with deep Montclair roots, still talk about that 1990 game. He says it's a grudge he inherited just by being from Montclair. Ricky's about 10 years younger than the guys who played that year, but he grew up hearing stories about them. Guys like star quarterback Lamont Ponton. Ponton, you hear, you know, like, that was Mike Vick before Mike Vick, and you just hear these bigger-than-life names. But I always heard that he just was phenomenal. So... You didn't really have to be there at that time to feel how special that team was and how special certain players were. Ricky told us he understands how hard it must have been for them to lose that game all too well. Because back in 2000, Ricky was a superstar running back for the Mounties. His senior year, he rushed for more than 2,000 yards and scored 28 touchdowns. He broke school records, he was named the New Jersey State Player of the Year, and he was a top recruit with his pick of Division I schools. He was quite literally the friggin' man. I really got to a point where I just felt like I'm going to get on this field. I'm going to run for over 100 yards. You're not going to stop me. But Ricky has one huge regret. I did not win a state championship. I would give back all my accolades if I could have won a state championship. And I mean that to this day. That, That still bothers me. That's how much Montclair High football means to me. Like, people can go back and say, yeah, Ricky Cook did this, did this, did that, did that. And then somebody looked up and said, but he's not on one of these banners. He didn't win a state championship. That's what football in Montclair is about, winning. We're about winning state championships. That's the expectation here in Montclair. That's the end game. There's nothing else that really matters. Why is that? Because that's the Mountie pride. From Campside Media, Entertainment One, and NJ Advanced Media, this is Lights Out. I'm Matt Stanmeyer. And this is episode two. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen. A theme of uh, so many moments. Montclair Pride. Maybe the last play of this game. Six seconds remain. They're all down on their knees praying. The kick is up. Lots of high schools across the country have strong football programs with proud alums. Maybe they donate to the school or come back to town once a year for homecoming games. But I've rarely seen fans as loyal and intense as the Mountie faithful. I had a friend who moved out to California who would literally call the police station every Saturday and say, hey, how did Montclair do against this team? And eventually they, they said, listen, you really can't call us for football scores. So I wanted to know why. Why was this team so special? And how did this North Jersey town become one that cared so much about high school football? I heard about Montclair pride from a lot of people. They told me the phrase boils down to tradition and unity. Basically, no matter your race or your family's income, if you were from Montclair, then Montclair had your back. Always. But more than anything, it was about something that was pervasive in the community. Something that touched nearly all facets of life in town. Mountie football. It was something real. It wasn't just a word or a saying. It was really Montclair Pride. And I wasn't from Montclair, so I had to get introduced to it. This is Dyro Patterson again, who we heard from in the last episode. Dyro first learned about Montclair Pride after his family moved there from Newark. And he told me a story that encapsulates it. One day, when he was around 15 or 16, he was going to the arcade in town. And suddenly, Montclair police came out of nowhere. The unmarked car rose up on me, like on the sidewalk. They stop him, pat him down, and they find less than an ounce of weed stashed in his pants. 
Dairo had been planning to sell it to kids at the arcade. He was a sophomore in high school at the time, so old enough to get into big trouble. He could have faced jail time or a felony charge, but that didn't happen. I got smacked in the face by one of the officers. And they called my mother. I'm like, oh, man, don't call her. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't call Andrea. <laughs> For some reason, Dairo just got a slap on the wrist, or in this case, the face. They let me off because of the sports, because some of the, the coaches were police officers. It wasn't the first time Montclair Pride would save Dairo, and it wouldn't be the last. Another time, he and some of his teammates are driving around in a car they call the Stinkin' Lincoln. It was his friend's mom's car, and they're smoking a little weed. They get pulled over. Police surround the car with their guns drawn. But once they see who's inside, four or five starting players for the Mounties, they put their weapons away and let them go. Dairo gets really lucky, again, and for one distinct reason. If you play sports, then they knew you, you know what I mean? All sports were big in Montclair. Basketball, lacrosse, soccer, field hockey. But football? Football was king. Montclair High School football dates back more than a century, to 1888. They were playing football at Montclair High before Theodore Roosevelt was president, and before the First World War. But football's grip in Montclair isn't just about longevity. The Mounties were, and are, a total powerhouse. Montclair has 27 state championships, the ninth most of any high school in the country. Before Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon, he was the starting center for the Mounties and their undefeated team in 1946. Halfback Aubrey Lewis is widely regarded as New Jersey's greatest offensive player of the 20th century. He rushed for nearly 4,500 yards for Montclair in the 1950s, and he became Notre Dame's first black team captain. Then there's Len Coleman, who became president of Major League Baseball's National League. He was an All-American halfback for the Mounties in 1966. The list goes on and on. It means that if you grow up in Montclair, you're indoctrinated into this winning culture, and you bleed blue and white. High school football in Montclair, I think, is really the key to why it's such a unique town and why people have such a strong bond. Regardless of who you were or what color you were or what religion you were, I think that was the glue. It's more than just high school football. It always has been and probably always will be. This is Mike Mafucci. Mike's the vice president of Autoland, a major car dealership in New Jersey. So he's a salesman. And if you couldn't tell, he's also a lifelong diehard Mountie. When I started working on this story, people told me that if I really wanted to understand the fan base and passion for Mountie football, Mike was the guy. They claimed that my father changed my diaper on the bleachers. When I met with Mike in his office, he was wearing a jet black suit with an open collar, a look straight out of The Sopranos, and at least five gold chains. At least. The screensaver on his computer was a picture of a Mountie helmet, and there's a plaque on the wall honoring Autoland's sponsorship of the team. There was also a photo of his father, Joseph, who played for the Mounties in the 40s. He never missed a game and even won an award for 75 years of dedication to the program. When Joseph died in 2011, the entire team walked a mile from Woodman Field to the funeral home to pay their respects. Then they played the whole season with Joseph's initials on their helmet. Even when he was uh, close to his final days, uh, he still made a point that he wanted to go to see the kids play. Saturday mornings, Mike's entire family would walk over to the field to watch the Mounties games. It was a Mafuchi tradition, but it was also a Montclair tradition. It was like the town shut down when Montclair played. Stores closed, streets emptied, the whole place seemed deserted for those three hours. 
Steve Bafico, another former player, looks back on those memories with nostalgia. On my front porch on a Saturday morning, you could hear the band and the thump of the drums and the cheerleaders. The pomp and circumstance of the day, you could hear all the way up the street. It's fair to say there was, you know, a palpable sense of excitement in the community, and you felt that from various inputs, whether that was school or church or just around town. Back then, it wasn't unusual for there to be as many as 7,000 fans in the bleachers for a run-of-the-mill home game. That was roughly 20% of the town's population. It's pretty much Friday Night Lights, but with Jersey accents. It wasn't a typical high school uh, uh, atmosphere. It was more of a, almost like a, like a, a college-type atmosphere, you know? Listen, I remember a game as Thanksgiving games even against Bloomfield. There was 13,000 people there. Forget about bleachers. You weren't getting in any of those. I mean, there was people uh, watching from the houses of the fire escapes and roofs. I mean, it was, this is high school football in New Jersey. But I mean, back in those days, you go to a Montclair football game, especially if it was a big game, it was standing room only. It was business, it was serious. It was so serious, there was even a local TV channel dedicated to covering the games. I'm talking a pair of news anchors dressed in suits and ties, breaking down matchups like it's Monday night football. They would do pre-game stand-up shots, then post-game interviews with the players and coaches. They had more than 100,000 viewers tuning in. And that's on top of several local and regional newspapers covering every single nuance of the season with incredible detail. Mounties games were often front-page news in the Montclair Times, and the edition after each game was filled with letters to the editor from fans with coaching critiques and hot takes. There you see the Mounties wearing their blue jerseys, white helmets, white pants. Montclair pride, the call from the Mounties. These weren't just high school football players. They were local celebrities. Those guys were stars to us. And it's funny because it's like people do it with NFL teams, but we were doing it with a high school team. And you kept hearing that, like, Montclair Pride, Montclair Pride, Montclair Pride. Ricky Cook, the cop we heard from earlier, is one of several Montclair police officers with ties to the football program. What's funny is now he sometimes gets paid to work the Mounties games he's been watching his whole life. As a kid, he remembers marveling over the players. Back then, they seemed so massive and powerful, but they were cool, too. They had swagger and style, like they just knew they were the shit. During Mounties games, Ricky and his buddies would have their own pickup game going on in the back of the field. Little Mounties in training, mimicking the older players, right down to the juke moves. One of my favorite running backs was Omar Liggins. I'd be like, well, I'm Omar Liggins, and somebody else would say they're um, another player or another player. All the boys had their favorites they would emulate. Kevin Richburg and Steve Perrier and Daryl Giles and Len Coleman. But there was one guy who was everyone's favorite, by far. I idolized guys like, you know, Quintus McDonald. We all wanted to be Quintus McDonald. Quintus, Quintus was one of my favorites. Back in the early 1980s, Quintus was an icon to kids in town. And not only kids, adults too. In 1983, when Quintus was a junior, Montclair won its first state championship in 17 years, ending a title drought that felt like forever for Mounties fans. And in 1984, he was the first Mountie ever to be named Defensive Player of the Year by USA Today. Quintus eventually went on to play for Joe Paterno at Penn State, and then the NFL. But no matter how big he got, he would always come back home to Montclair to visit his old stomping grounds. He came and brought his helmet from Penn State. And to see what that helmet looked like, he was like, golly. And then to hear him talk about how passionate he is about the Mounties and like 
to the point where he almost cries. It's like, yo, like this is this is serious. And Quintus wasn't alone when it came to returning to his roots. Ricky said former Mounties icon Aubrey Lewis would also come back to Montclair regularly. He would give out free sneakers to kids in town, and he even hosted new coaches at his home. It doesn't matter if you were a Mountie from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, to the 2000s. We could all be in a room and, and, you know, we're all getting along like we've been around each other all our lives. That's what made Montclair High football so special. Nearly every person I spoke to for this story had their own Mounties keepsakes. Some had boxes filled with old photos and articles. One player had a bound book of newspaper clippings. Others still had VHS tapes of big games. I can remember the days that somebody would jump up in front of me. That's Mr. Sistrunk. Don't get in front of the camera. Oh, yeah. What kind of camera did, were you filming on? Is yeah. this one of those big camcorders back then? Yeah, it weighed about 500 pounds. I remember one game, my daggone battery went dead on me. I almost had a heart attack. That's Pony Sistrunk, unofficial Mountie historian and team dad of the 1990 team. You could spot him at every game, at the top of the bleachers, with a giant Sony video camera slung over his shoulder. He was so focused, people thought he was a scout. He was always there to watch his son Gary play. Gary was a defensive back on the team. My father was at every game. I think he missed one game because he had to go out of state. I didn't miss practices. (laughs) Yeah, he was at practices as well. Yeah, so he, he was always there. Pony's 81 now, and still sharp as a tech. He told me he has 48 offspring, including a great-grandchild born just that morning at 7.03 a.m. He told me Christmas is hell, and then laughed. The family lives in Georgia now, in a massive house. But Pony said it never felt like home down there, because it's not Montclair. We spoke in Pony's office, which is filled with pictures of Gary's football days. It was clear that watching his son play was one of the highlights of Pony's life. Now, football is in my heart. I was a pitiful football player myself. But when I saw my kids playing it, my heart was out there also. I was playing it. I can remember watching my son throw a touchdown pass one, day, one year. In the same game, he caught a touchdown pass. Pony's got shelves lined with VHS tapes of Gary's games. He also showed me a stack of scrapbooks from Gary's football days, though calling them scrapbooks may not be fair. They're laminated, elaborate journals that document each season in painstaking detail. He's got registration cards and team rosters and game-by-game scores. It's all there. Looking through old articles and season stats, it was clear that Gary's team wasn't only good for their year. They were one of the best teams in Mountie history. Think about that for a second. That's decades of football excellence, and they were among the greatest of all time. People talk about them, then and now, like they had always been destined to make history. Even the most successful players across generations, people like Quintus and Ron Burton, remember watching them play. Ricky has a theory about what made them so unique. While other Mounties teams relied heavily on one or two star players, in the case of the 1990 team, the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. That 90s team, they were a great team. Just wasn't one great player. And I think that's football. Football isn't like basketball. Michael Jordan could come out and have 70-something points and win a game by itself. But Joe Montana can't throw the ball and run and catch it. So it's going to take all 11 players to be successful. So I feel football's the ultimate team sport. That probably sounds cliche. But the truth is, the entire 1990 roster was devoid of weak links. For starters, the Mounties had not one but two running backs who rushed for more than 1,000 yards. 
they had an unstoppable offensive line. They had a star pass catcher in Jason Curry, an all-state defensive lineman in Lenny Watkins, and a dynamo linebacker in Daryl Elder. So how was it possible that they had so much talent in one year? Was it just chance? Fate? Or was there something else? That's after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When I first started interviewing former players for this story, I thought we would be talking mostly about the Mounties. But the Cobras, Montclair's youth football team, kept coming up. Here's Pony's son, Gary, showing me an old team program from the early 1980s. This right here is like a roster of each team that was in the, um, the Cobras League. And it had every player that played with their names. So you could actually run down a list and find the whole Montclair High School football team in the Little League. So that's basically where I met a lot of the players that I played with in high school. Turns out, the Cobras, a team of elementary and middle schoolers, are a local institution. They're just as important to the culture in Montclair as the Mounties. Maybe even more so, because nearly every single player that went on to star for the Mounties played for the Cobras first. From Super Bowl hero David Tyree, to Major League Baseball player Dale Barra, to Quintus and Ricky, and on and on. It's where they first learned the game. It's where they mastered their skills, honed their toughness, and developed their camaraderie as teammates and friends. It was just a, a close-knit brotherhood, you know, and it pretty much is still to this day. The Cobras were founded in 1969 by Howard Finney, the godfather of Montclair football. Finney, who died in 2021, had been a stockbroker on Wall Street. He went to Harvard and later spent some time in the Marines. But the Cobras were his true passion. Finney was involved with the program for nearly half a century. They operated out of his home on Parkway in Montclair, directly across the street from where the Cobras practiced. Over his career, he won more than 400 games, which is just insane for youth football. If you ask former Cobra players to describe Finney, everyone has a different memory seared in their brains. But plenty of people remember him shouting all over the field. He was a great talker. Like, he, he always had a story. He smoked a lot of cigarettes, which I remember. I mean, chain smoker, like, as soon as he break one, he goes light up another one. He would have his raisins, and he had his clicker, and he was all X's and O's. You know, he wore a hearing aid, and when the other assistant coaches would uh, try and say things to him, he would turn his hearing aid down <laughs> so he couldn't hear what they were saying and just continue to walk on and do what he was doing. Back in the day, 
there would be dozens of kids lining up to join the Cobras. The program was diverse and inclusive. Any kid could play. And if you couldn't afford the modest registration fees, you could pay your way by selling decal stickers of the team's logo. It didn't matter if you couldn't even catch the ball. The Cobras coaches would teach you. They were mostly blue-collar guys, local firefighters and cops, and playing for them was kind of like being in a military boot camp. As soon as players joined, they were expected to be disciplined and tough. Like one coach told me, their practice field was so littered with goose poop that kids would come up from making tackles with clumps of it stuck in their face masks. And by the way, some of these kids were as young as eight years old. And if you didn't like it, too bad. That first year, I was horrible. <laughs> I didn't know how to hit. I didn't know how to tackle. I didn't know how to do anything. And uh, I just remember just being like the hitting dummy. Like they just, you know, come at full speed and just knock my block off. Long before Dyra was a Mountie getting let off the hook by Montclair PD, he was just another first-time Cobra learning the basics. He's not the best on the team when his mom first signs him up. Far from it, actually. He's never played football, or any sport for that matter. I remember where two people had to lay down, and then one person with the football would get up, and the other person would get up, and you had to tackle the person. Just 100% of your body into them. Contact. A lot of contact. I remember the practices being very painful. <laughs> but I liked it. <laughs> because um, I was part of the team. I was, I was with, you know, the fellas. Dyro's content to just be one of the guys, even if it means getting knocked out every once in a while. It was the confidence boost he needed at that age. Because remember, Dyro's nickname was Roly Poly, and he had a really bad stutter. It had gotten severe to the point he would barely speak in school, so he wouldn't get teased. Dyro kept his head down, just kind of hoping no one would notice him until that became impossible. His teachers start to notice his performance in class. He's barely engaged and visibly struggling. Eventually, Dyro's diagnosed with a learning disability. He remembers a guidance counselor or someone from the school giving him the news. He was using key words like always. He'll always have a problem learning. And I'm like, I, I, not always. And then you question yourself. Like, wow, well, they pay him money to analyze people. Maybe he's right. I just can't learn. The school decides to place Dyro in a special education class. And if being the new kid wasn't enough, this was pretty much like having a target on his back. Being 11, 12, 13, it's pretty hard to begin with. Braces, acne, puberty, your voice cracking and body changing. Not exactly a fun time period, right? But Dyro also realizes for the first time he has the power to be who he wants to be. And this old Dyro, the stammering, roly-poly Dyro, isn't it. That person was weak. No one, no one respected that person. That person stuttered, so I didn't like that person. So I said, I'm, I'm gonna build another person, a tough guy, a badass that you can't mess with. And what's more badass than football? In football, he doesn't have to read out loud for the whole class to hear, and being chubby isn't such a bad thing. For a defensive player, his size is actually an asset. I came across a picture of Dyro during his very first season with the Cobras in 1985 in one of the Sistrunk scrapbooks. He's wearing a blue number 70 jersey with white pants and white cleats, standing on the crabgrass at Edgemont Park. Below the photo, Pony pasted black block letters that spell out, Refrigerator, a nickname his teammates gave him. 
We used to call them the refrigerators. They was big back then? Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, if you find that picture in there, you'll see them. <laughs> and it, it had refrigerator written up under his name. Dyro's nickname comes from William the Refrigerator Perry, who was the star defensive tackle for the 1985 Super Bowl champion Chicago Bears. The new refrigerator Dyro starts to make more friends with the other kids on the Cobras. Terrence Garrison, Afkin Matthews, Tim Lee, and Gary Sistron. Many of them were black, but he also made white friends for the first time. And this is where the brotherhood that Gary told me about started. They'd all hang out at each other's houses, especially at the Sistrunks, where every kid was welcome at the dinner table. It meant more to Dyro than Gary or Pony would ever know. I had an infatuation with him and his father because his father came to all his practices. He didn't miss a practice. And I always envied that. Like, wow, that's, that, that guy has to be a great feeling. I wish that was me. Why do you think you noticed that? Because I, I miss my dad. Dyro's father never saw him play, but Pony, the unofficial team dad, was there rooting not just for Gary, but for all the boys. They were a part of our family. You can say that in words, but it was a feeling with us. They were part of our family. By the time the boys are in eighth grade, they're playing for the Cobras varsity team. It's the top level in the program. They've mastered the footwork, they know how to make plays, and their bond, it also translated onto the field. It was like they had an unspoken connection that only comes from really knowing someone. Dyro and Gary could just give each other one look, and they would know exactly what to do. They hyped each other up, and they always protected one another. Dyro remembers one Cobras game. A massive 6-2 player on the other team was talking smack. And yes, he was big for his age, but Dyro wasn't going to let it slide. It was like, oh, y'all my clear, y'all soft, you know. So it was like, I'm getting angry right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it's my team. You can't be talking to my team like that. So we was going back and forth, and then I said, okay, watch the next play. Watch what I do to you. Dyro's not even six feet tall, but he's not scared to run right through guys, especially when they're disrespecting his team. So Dyro locks in. And I was coming off the side, and I just put everything I had in me. You know, I just, my whole body, I just put it. And then you just heard something like snap or pop or something like that. And the loudest yell in the world. Dyro hit him so hard, he broke the kid's leg. I was a little arrogant that day because I felt like that I, I took out their best player. If this happened today, somebody would probably get sued. But look, this was football of the late 1980s before everybody knew about the devastating impact of concussions. Back then, if you got your bell rung, you just got back up and kept playing. Me and Gary Sistrunk were like the, the enforcer. Like, if the hit was going to happen, it's going to be either him or me that the hit was going to come from. If you wanted, like, the person where, ooh, that ooh, that's going to be myself or Gary Sistrunk. It was football. <laughs> football is a rough game. It's, you know what you're getting into when you play this sport, you know. Injuries come with the sport, you know. It's not made for the weak. <laughs> Dyro and Gary's team wasn't just tough. They were undefeated by the end of the season in 1987. And they were smoking pretty much everybody. Here's Pony again. We beat everybody to death. Uh, you can go into any of the papers and see the scores. We set town records. 30 to nothing. If anybody scored, they were lucky. The boys make it all the way to the national championship in Daytona Beach, Florida. That means they get to play on a legit college field. No goose poop. That right there was epic. Like, you felt like, oh, I'm in the NFL right now. 
the Super Bowl, the junior Super Bowl. The Cobras dominated. They won 42 to 6. They were national champions at the age of 14, and they set a Cobras record. They had the highest scoring average at nearly 30 points per game. By pretty much any metric, they were one of the best Cobras teams Montclair had ever seen. This tight-knit, dominating crew, this chosen family, these are the boys that would one day become that incredible 1990 Mounties team. Their brotherhood is what makes them different from nearly any other team in Mountie history. And it was clear they developed that synergy way before they ever stepped foot on Woodman Field. The confidence, grit, and passion they became known for, it came from a pure love of the game. But winning's cool too. Dyro remembers the crowd shouting, Montclair Pride, during one of their Cobras games. It's the first time they ever experienced what it feels like when your whole town is behind you. It's intoxicating. I had this winning attitude, and I took that same energy to high school. When you put on this blue and white, there's not anyone on the opposite team better than you. And when you have that mind frame, then that's what made you Monty Pride. But there was another side to Montclair Pride. Dyra would learn about that as a freshman after getting called up to the varsity team. He remembers that feeling like it was yesterday. So, I mean, to be moved up, he was like, oh, man, you can't tell me that. You know, I'm a freshman, and I'm on the big field. I mean, I ain't in a dirt field where you play JV and freshman. I'm on this nice field. They had real grass at that time. I was bleeding blue. Dyro has freshmen written all over his face, and the other team zeroes in on him right away. I mean, they went right at me, boom, 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 boom. And you hear the people go, get him out of the game. <laughs> get him out of the game. They called for my head to get out. I felt like crap, you know. Dyro looked up into the stands. For the first time, Mountie fans were booing him. Some of them were people he knew. He was humiliated. But it was a lesson. High school football is no joke in Montclair, especially in the big leagues, on the varsity. Montclair pride came from decades of winning seasons and state titles. It's not a town accustomed to losing. So the people who filled that stadium expected a certain standard. They didn't care if you were 14 or 15. You better deliver. And when the Mounties did lose, well, just imagine. Listen, if Montclair lost, which we didn't do often, thank God, we were in a depression. The whole family, or the whole block, probably the whole town. I mean, it wasn't like something, oh, okay, come on, guys, we'll get them next week. It was bad. It was like somebody died. I remember as a kid watching, like, my, my older cousins crying that they lost. My mother's go, oh, God, what happened? Did they lose? Oh, this is going to be some weekend. And I come from a big Italian family. I we got home on a Saturday afternoon. There was macaroni, and it was all kind of, you know, it was a, eh, we're not hungry. What do you mean I'm not, yeah, I've been cooking all day. We're not hungry. I'm so sick of this fucking football shit. (laughs) You know what I mean? Next time on Lights Out. The Montclair fans, the hardcore ones, could be brutal. We didn't get rattled. We were coached well, and we were determined to be the best. Coach always taught us that we don't play for the fans because they love you when you win, but they criticize you when you lose. The thing they have to like about these kids is that they take things personal, and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's a that's a competitive fire they have within them. And they ask, like, what do we want to accomplish this year? And they're saying, we want to win every game. We want to win state championship. The pressure was high, but I think that if we were to let anybody down, if we weren't to become number one, we felt that we failed ourselves. We had poured so much sweat and blood that you're going to have to kill us to get us to quit.
Lights Out is a production of Campside Media and Entertainment One in association with NJ Advanced Media and XTR. This series was reported and hosted by me, Matt Stanmeyer. Naomi Brauner is the senior producer, and Kim Baikema is the associate producer. Additional production support from Natalia Winkleman and Campside senior producer, Lindsay Kilbride. Our story editor and executive producer is Emily Martinez. Mixing, sound design, and original music by Ewan Leitremuen. This series was fact-checked by Lauren Vispoli and Matt Giles. Special thanks to Robert Fox, Chris Kelly, Steve Politti, Anthony Pacillo, Jeff McGrath, and Paul Spahala. A special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, and Destiny Dingle. Our executive producers are Lee Eisenberg from A Piece of Work, Justin Lacob from XTR, and from Campside Media, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed Lights Out, please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweaters starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.